Welcome to the State of the Lakers postgame show. Happy Friday night, everybody. I hope you're all having, um, getting ready for a good, fun weekend. Uh, Lakers sticking with the theme, decided to have another super bizarre, super strange game. Um, my guy Raj is pulling a Draymond. He is calling from the parking lot after the loss. Um, he, he is, he is uh, making time for us after the game. He was there in the building, so he'll be able to give us a little extra perspective on just how terrible the effort was. Um, quick context here. The Lakers, you know, obviously, in addition to being down a bunch of bodies from injury, also had just had a couple of really, really tough games. Um, with LeBron out, it just takes so much more physically from this team to be able to win. And obviously with those two super competitive games with the overtimes, it's not entirely uncommon for a team to come out flat um, or to come out looking good, but then to run out of gas. Um, However, that was borderline a quit job there in the second half. I thought there was such a large chasm in effort between the two teams. Our guy, uh, uh, Krangis, who's my favorite, um, you know, statistical analyst that, uh, that covers the NBA right now. He, uh, sent out a tweet a few games ago saying like, it's amazing how quick people are to blame effort for the Lakers struggles. And that is true to a lot of, uh, to a large extent because of their personnel shortcomings, which we've talked about so much on the show, like, Hey, it's really hard to run modern NBA defensive coverages without forwards. Like that's, it's not something you can play hard your way through in a lot in a lot of ways. However, I thought tonight it was just an effort thing. <laughs> like tonight was one of those nights where the effort was the primary driving force behind the wheels coming off. Um, so, Raj, what was it like there in the building? What was what was your initial takeaway from um, from uh, just just how bad things went there in the second half? Yeah, so like being at the game, being at being at Stable Center, you can kind of feel all of the energy, the crowd trying to give the energy to the team. And in the first half, I thought it was working pretty well, honestly. Like I thought Russ was just having an okay floor game. I thought AD was incredible. And I'm over here in my seat, like taking notes. You know, I'm like, oh, AD, you know, nice help there. Switched on, uh, switched over and call Anthony Towns, and still switched on Edwards. And then that third, I went to go get a drink, went back in my seat, and that third quarter was just hell like the whole and again like not just to blame it all on effort but like you could definitely see the body language being up close of all the players once like those open threes started to miss and then Carl Anthony Towns went kind of berserk with his shooting and the defense really dropped off again like it's not all effort I don't think you can lose a third quarter 40 to 12 and just blame it all on effort because at some point you're getting your ass kicked and there's something has to change there but Minnesota just kept pushing it, and we just couldn't get any stops. We got really lethargic. All those fighting over ball screens stopped. Um, all that trying to fight through and try to contain guards all stopped. Anthony Edwards got wherever he wanted. It opened up shooters. Carl um, Anthony Towns, like I said, started hitting. He was going one-on-one and AD a lot, and I was fine with that in the first half. In the second half, his jumper just started to go. You could tell it excited them. I'm not sure, like, I, at least in person – just seeing Minnesota going on that run, it just felt like they just couldn't, they just could not stop them at, at all, no matter what happened. And then obviously effort kind of went into that. We missed open shots. Carmelo was super cold. His first kind of ice cold staples game, I guess. I don't know. Just being in the building, you could tell the fans get kind of tired of it. There's a little bit of a booing there in the third quarter, 
especially uh, when the lead got really lead got really big. But yeah, that was the most initial take. Uh, my biggest take, I guess, was being there and seeing all the guys who are injured on the bench. You know, seeing LeBron next to THT, next to Ariza, next to Nunn, and then Austin Reeves behind them, looking like an assistant coach, uh, sitting on the back behind the players. That was kind of the thing that kind of popped out, how many players are out. But that's no excuse to get, you know, almost 40-piece tonight by Minnesota. But that was the takeaways, being there, I guess, being in the building. Um, the fans were kind of tired of it. They were tired of the energy in that third, and I thought you could really feel them. Uh, the boos weren't loud enough, but there were definitely people starting to boo in that third. You know, fans, I was actually talking about this with uh, one of my friends on uh, uh, Twitter earlier today, this idea that, you know, the, the most unlikable trait in all of sports is inconsistent effort. You know, like that's why that's why we always get naturally drawn to guys like Austin Reeves or like Alex Caruso. It's, you know, it's not because they're the, the white guy that can jump a little bit. It's because they play really hard all the time. It's the most likable trait in all of sports. It's no same reason why Gary Payton Jr. is, is, is building such a cult following with Golden State fans. It's this, this guy checks in the game and you can depend on him to just sell his soul on every play to try to make something happen for his team. And so I, I don't necessarily blame the fans for getting upset. Obviously, I don't like the idea of booing necessarily uh, in, a, in the middle of a random regular season game. But, you know, wh- <laughs> where I thought where I thought things got, got off the rail, got off the rails has to do with this concept of comfort in basketball. It's actually something that I'm trying to sell to the high school kids that I'm coaching right now. This this idea that if you from the opening tip in a game really, really apply ball pressure, like intense ball pressure, then even the best of players in the world, even if they are capable of getting to their spots and making some shots here and there, they're going to be largely uncomfortable during the game. And uh, there's a reason why Carl Anthony Towns gets going and starts making a bunch of threes. And there's a reason why D'Angelo Russell gets going. And starts hitting every time they go, you know, under a pick and roll or get caught on a screen. It's because they get comfortable. And when you allow good basketball players to be comfortable, especially ones that are as talented as these guys are, they're just going to get hot eventually. It's like guaranteed to happen. You know, when you when you pull a, a random Steph Curry game and you organize all the field goal percentages from highest to lowest, chances are if you watch the tape. The ones where he's lower are going to be the ones where the teams do a better job of making him feel uncomfortable. And the ones where he's higher are going to be the ones where the teams didn't apply a lot of ball pressure, didn't apply a lot of physical you know, pressure off the ball that, that to make him feel uncomfortable as the game is progressing. And that's not just a Steph thing. That's with every star. And I thought that's what happened tonight. And the reason why it got so out of hand is on the other end of the floor, the, the Wolves did a fantastic job applying ball pressure. Even Anthony Davis's jump shots that he was taking were far more contested than the ones Carl Anthony Towns was taking, which is wild when you consider the gap between the two of them as shooters. They were up in up in Russ. You know, Pat Beverly was applying ball pressure as the ball was being brought up the floor. You know, uh, on every catch, they were bumping you off balance. There were a bunch of plays where Anthony Davis would start on the block and come off of like a pin down or something to try to catch at the elbow. And when he would catch at the elbow, he'd have to like extend the ball and quick twist and get his hips around to shield the defender. Cause the defender is just right there, like right in his shorts, trying to make him feel uncomfortable. And so, you know, that sort of thing I thought manifested in that third quarter 
to the Lakers feeling deeply uncomfortable, which caused them to, because they were lazy and out of, you know, because their legs weren't there, because they were fatigued from what's been a long week, they then resorted to settling for jump shots. And that's, that can't happen with that AD at the five lineup. If AD's at the five, that needs to be a dribble drive attack type of offense. And there just was no rim pressure. There was none of that because they were uncomfortable and because they were fatigued. But I want to give Minnesota a lot of credit because they simply outplayed the Lakers, particularly at the point of attack. Anytime anybody had the ball in terms of just the level of discomfort they were inflicting on their opponent. Yeah, like in person, you could really tell Minnesota was super physical to start this game, especially at the point of attack. We started Wayne Ellington, uh, another non-ball handler, Avery Bradley as well, right? Not like a ball handler. Even Russ, they made it difficult for him. They were super physical early. I thought that's why we really couldn't score. It was a super low scoring first quarter, I believe. I think in the second quarter, um, we picked it up a little bit. But yeah, they did a great job there. But I mean, like there's a difference between like what the other team does and what you yourself can do to control it, right? Like, it's just that third quarter to me was more on the Lakers' end than what anything Minnesota was doing to me. But, yeah, you're right. To start that game, uh, they did a great job being physical. I thought AD gets pushed out of his spots a lot, um, and they did that again tonight. Towns was super physical down low. I thought he had a great first quarter, though. He was running the floor, catching lobs, um, you know, dominating inside with the offensive rebounds. But, like, this offense where we're just doing these dribble handoffs, like, it looks super – it looks even uglier in person – uh, I just wish they went straight Russ, AD, pick and roll. I'm going to ask you about Russ because I thought tonight, I looked at his, you know, his box score at halftime wasn't great. It was like seven points, I think, three assists or something like that. He got a lot of it in garbage time tonight, uh, which doesn't really reflect, reflect his uh, his stats from, from tonight. But just how did it look on TV, I guess? Because in person, I thought he was playing a pretty good uh, floor game. Like he wasn't forcing things. I think he took his first three like with, like six minutes left in the third, if I'm correct. I think it was only like one or two threes, um, but they were all late in the second half. I thought he was trying to find AD, trying to force it into him. They had nice actions where they got Wayne Ellington a bunch of looks. He was my positive for tonight. I guess we can save the positives for a little later. This is more of a negative kind of game. Uh, but what did you kind of see from Russ? Because I feel like in that first half, I thought he was doing okay. Um, and then that third quarter, he was a big part of the just let's just stop caring anymore. Uh, after Minnesota I think went up nine and basically the Lakers just they decided to pack it in as pretty much as a team as a group effort the whole team kind of packed it in but what did you see from Russ tonight I thought Russ was fantastic in the first half he did an outstanding job of applying rim pressure and creating high quality shots which is something that doesn't always show up on the box score especially when you have multiple shooters on the floor and the defense will do a good job of rotating on the first pass but fall apart on the second or third pass and you'll get a good shot out of it. You know, this is something that I talked a lot about in the last pod, this idea that if you allow Russ to play in space to start the game with AD at the five, he'll get a couple of easy baskets early in the game that will give him the confidence to, to channel that throughout the rest of the game. And he really did for most of the first half or for really the entire first half. He was, especially after that first stretch, after his first stint, when he got in uh, uh, in the second quarter, he was doing an outstanding job of just beating guys off the dribble and making that kickout pass to whether it was Bazemore on the wing or whether it was Monk on the wing or whether it was Mello on the wing. And then those guys would make simple little closeout reads out of that. And it all looked really good. 
Um, but for whatever reason in the third quarter, he just wasn't getting to the rim. And it's hard to say what caused that. I'd have to go back and look at the film. Obviously, you know, our, uh, you know, friend from LFR, uh, Darius Soriano believes it's associated with fatigue and the fact that they've had a long week and the fact that, um, you know, when you have an older team like this, they're just more susceptible to that kind of thing. But I think it was a combination of both. Like, you know, I think you'd like to, in theory, see that type of fatigue manifest more in shots, not falling, because then at least you can trust the process, right? Like if we're running good stuff and we're driving and kicking and we got good motion and we're kicking to shooters and they're just missing shots, at least then you can say, Hey, we, we, we had good process. The results just weren't there. But uh, that same dribble penetration that was there in the first half was not there in the second half. And that's the best way to get out of a slump or to get out of a, a bad run like that. Right. You know, I always talk about how when you're when you're mm-hmm. in adversity, you have to fall back on your habits. Right. When when the other team has it going and you don't, the only way to flip the script is to fall back on good habits that you've established. So, for instance, like I said earlier, if Carl Anthony Towns has made a couple threes and D'Angelo Russell's made a couple threes or Anthony Edwards has made a couple threes, all you can do, all you can hope to to turn that tide is to make them feel uncomfortable. They might make a couple more if they're still hot, but if you continue to make them feel uncomfortable and you continue to play solid defense, they will start missing because every player in the history of basketball will eventually start missing if you play solid defense on them. And then on the other end, same thing. Okay. If you miss a three, that's fine. Did you have good process? Was it just swinging around on the perimeter and a guy just jacking the first time he had an inch of breathing room? Or was it a paint touch? Did you get the ball into the paint and then kick it out? The difference between those two is if you're driving into the paint and kicking it out, chances are the shooter is already squared up to the rim. Chances are the shooter doesn't have to do anything weird with his vision to find the rim because he's already looking at the rim. And chances are he's balanced and has his momentum moving towards the basket and it's probably a higher quality shot. That process just got so jacked up in the second half. They let Minnesota stay comfortable. And on the other end, they were not generating the same quality shots that they were in the first half. And couple that with the effort falling off. And what you have is a 40 to 12 quarter. Um, But to answer your question, Russ looked great, just like everyone looked great. Anthony Davis was better than Carl Anthony Towns in the first half. But in the, but in the mm-hmm. second half, Carl Anthony Towns was many, many, many levels better than Anthony Davis. And Russell Westbrook completely fell apart. And everybody fell apart. And that's how it went. So, I mean, take, take from that what you want. It's a highly unusual game in that respect because there was some real good in that first half. I thought the Lakers on several different occasions had a chance to get it up to double digits and they just couldn't make a couple plays here and there. But it was, de- it was definitely a funky one in that respect. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to throw this whole game out as negative. Sometimes these third quarters do happen. I don't like that it's kind of become a theme a little bit. Like they had a OKC had a big run on us twice actually again tonight um, against Minnesota. But yeah, I was like in my notes like that first play of the game where we scored our first field goal was you know they had an AD Russ pick and roll and then since the paint was empty Russ was able to get to the basket get a layup and then another one I think he had Dwight Howard on the floor with him as the only big he got to the rim and got a layup and he was he looked really comfortable attacking the rim in that way and that's why we start ad at the five to get him comfortable but like i don't know i'm kind of in between this where like russ has to play his game and also we kind of need his counting stats with 
LeBron out. You know what I mean? Like, that's where I was wrestling with during the game live. I looked up. I'm like, we're playing really well. We're up five. But Russ has, like, seven points, three assists. And in my head, like, I thought we were playing well at halftime. But I was just thinking, like, that's not sustainable for us right now with the talent we have. Like, he needs to produce at a more at a higher level. Um, and that's kind of how the game went. Uh, he continued to kind of stay at that seven, eight point kind of. He kind of stayed at that point level, and then Minnesota went on and went on their run. We had a super cold stretch, and maybe you just throw that third quarter out to fatigue. Uh, but it just happens too often for me to just throw it out because they played an overtime game a couple of days ago. Like these offensive droughts happen way too often for me, and maybe that's just a function of the offense. Maybe that's a function of LeBron not playing our guards out. But it is happening a little bit uh, too often for me to just just throw this as effort. But you know, if the team's not caring, like it was a definitely a combination of like the lineups, the team not caring and Minnesota getting hot. It was like a perfect storm. That's not an excuse for them. It's just what I saw live. Kind of I saw the body language completely drop there in that in that third quarter. And some of the lineups in that second half, like the Rondo, Westbrook, um, AD and Dwight lineups were just head scratching to me. Uh, maybe Vogel just experimenting. Uh, but yeah, like it's tough to take from games like this. Like both of us like to go back and rewatch games, and that third quarter, like I just don't know what you do with that kind of <laughs> with that kind of film. You know what I mean? Like you just throw that out. Do you only take the first half from here because they tried in the first half? You know what I mean? Like it, it's tough. Even when I'm there at the game, I'm like, oh, we're down twelve, but this game's over. Like I, I could just feel where the game was going. So that's kind of how this one went, I guess. Yeah, I would throw out the film too. I mean, what, you know, what can you learn? about strategy when there's not effort behind it to support it. You know, you know what I mean? And, you know, you like to, to your point about Russ and his aggression, I I can't fault the guy when I've been begging him all year to make basketball reads, like real basketball reads, like reading the defense and the defense was collapsing uh, when he would drive to the rim. Mm -hmm. What I don't remember. And again, I'd have to go back and look at the film, but I don't remember a play where Russ drove into the paint and passed on a driving lane or passed on an opportunity to get all the way to the rim just to force it to some shooter on the wing. He was just making reads and that's, that's all we, that's Mm -hmm. all we can ask him to do. But you did make a really interesting point about their effort, because like you said, if this was a one-off, if this was a team that had consistent effort, and for whatever reason, it just didn't materialize tonight. Then you could fall back and say, hey, you know, this is just one of those nights. But as we've talked about, this team kind of has an identity and not the good kind. This team has an identity in that they are inconsistent with their effort. They have an identity in that they are inconsistent in their willingness to do the dirty work, in their willingness to physically put their imprint on the game. You know, like Anthony Davis, it's like, you know, uh, he'll go through these five, 10 minute stretches where he's just absolutely manhandling everybody on the floor and there's nothing anybody can do with him. But then he'll go through a five minute stretch where he's kind of just floating around. You know what I mean? So when that happens in a pivotal moment, are we going to sit there and say, you know, well, Anthony Davis just had a bad five minute stretch. Or are you going to sit there and say like, eh, this is kind of like what he does. You know what I mean? That's that that's that's what happens. What You know, the, the best indicator of future performance is past performance. So if I told you that over the course of the next 10 games, the Lakers were going to have three games where they brought absolutely trash effort and they lost to a team they probably should have beat. Would you be surprised or would that just be more nope. of what this team has kind of established as who they are? You know what I mean? And, and that's the, that's the concerning mm. part to me. And that's, 
you know, again, like we've talked about this in a bunch of different ways or throughout the season, like, is it related to coaching and buy-in? I don't know. If you ask me gun to my head, like, do these players seem to be committed to doing the job the way that they used to be under Frank in the previous two seasons? No, they absolutely are not. But I don't know if that's a coaching thing or if it's just a personnel thing or if it's just a, these are the, the, we mixed up with some different, different personalities in the locker room. And these personalities are less consistent with their focus and effort. I don't know. I I genuinely don't know. Um, I, I can have a theory you know, my theory is that this group isn't bought into Frank for whatever reason, but that's not founded on evidence. That's just a theory. You know what I mean? So it's hard to say, but I, mm-hmm. but you're, I'm glad you pointed at that out, Raj, because that's so important. Like this, this is not a 2020 Lakers happen to drop a couple games in a row around Christmas because they just kind of were in a little bit of a funk. No, this has been the story of the season for this team. You know, the difference is, is when you do it to Oklahoma City, you still have a chance to win at the end and maybe you'll get lucky. But when you do it against a team that's half decent, against a team that has some all star level talent on the floor, they will blow your freaking doors off, man. And and, and that's what happened. Yeah, and Minnesota's like I, they haven't played well the last few games, but they're a real team like they're a solid, you know, offensive latent team that can really break you. And while I was watching the game, I'm like, man. And again, I want to give AD credit at least for that first half because I thought it was absolutely absurd. Um, again, he's surrounded by a lot of, you know, below average guards. Um, like watching Rondo, Ellington, Monk, all out there together next to AD, and he has to clean up all of that. I don't know how fair that is, like, for him, I guess, to do that all game. that That's really tiring, switching out, helping here, you know, blocking here. Um, a lot of, like, blocks at the rim while also switching out to Anthony Edwards. And we just play a lot of like defensive, a lot of low, low, below average defensive guards. And maybe that's just what's going to happen right now. Like I thought Malik Monk and Wayne Ellington were fine defensively in that first half. Um, but maybe just expecting that for a full game is just not realistic. Also, Monk was super cold today. Uh, he had a couple shots go in, but I thought, you know, missed a lot of open ones. Our guards, man, in transition, like if it's not Russ or LeBron leading the break, it's just an absolute adventure. Uh, even in person, some of the passes uh, when Avery Bradley, Malik Monk, Bazemore trying to run transition, just a lot of wild stuff with our guards. And maybe that's just a factor of getting our shot creators back against staring at THT and LeBron on the bench. Uh, the whole game was kind of sad uh, watching us, you know, bobble balls all out all, all over the floor. But yeah, I mean, like, I don't know, like this team is not going to be able to be a top, you know, five defensive team. I think they were going in the right direction. They were playing well. And I was hoping that Miami game was something to kind of build off of. And I thought that's what that first half was. So if we want to throw out the second half and if you want to just build, and that's not how basketball works at all, obviously. But if you just build from that Miami game to like the first half of tonight, there's something there. But, you know, this, these second halves, like like you said, have just been happening too often where we just lay down. Like I understand we're out four or five guys. That makes sense. That doesn't give you the right to be 40 piece by Minnesota. You know what I mean? Like they, they were way too comfortable and there's got to be some kind of competitiveness there that kicks in. And maybe that's just a lack of that that's combined with the lack of defensive identity. You know what I mean? Like those two are kind of intertwined in a way. Uh, but yeah, I feel like this is where we're going to keep seeing, man. I think we play, we play Chicago next. Or, I think we play San Antonio we play on one thir- at one thirty uh, or 1230 year time. Oh, okay. Uh, oh, okay. Yes. The Spurs and Spurs and the Spurs on another team, a good team. They're not, you know, they're not a, 
play, they might not make the playoffs, but they're just a solid team that comes with a baseline level of effort every game that you have to be ready for as well. So, like, I, I don't know. Like, maybe this is just what we're going to get until the healthy guys come back. Uh, but, you know, there's no real word on when that is. So that's why I'm kind of tired of just using that as an excuse. And DeAndre Jordan didn't even play tonight. Like, <laughs> the, the the scapegoat uh, didn't even play tonight either. So it, you can't even blame him for this. So this is a – yeah, this was just a trash effort in the second half. And maybe that's all it is. Maybe we're overanalyzing that. But uh, I don't think that's acceptable either. No, I, I agree. I You know, I like I said, I have no problem with the fans booing when, when you know, they pay good money to go see – like, I made a joke. It reminded me of the Squid Game scene where uh, – where he is in that like subway station and the, the, the dude's like playing the game with him. And he's like, he's like, I'll let you play again. If you let me hit you in the face as hard as I can. And like the dude just keeps playing and the guy just keeps hitting him in the face. And like, when you're watching the scene, it's kind of like a little uncomfortable. Like you kind of are waiting for the, the main character to kind of flip out and just start, you know, beating the shit out of the guy just because he's sick of sick of losing and sick of getting hit. But it just doesn't happen, you know, and that's kind of the way this game was like as it's like, OK, you're you you were up at halftime. Now you're down. OK, now you're down four. OK, now you're down seven. OK, now you're down 12. OK, now you're down 20. OK, now you're down 30. Like, OK, at what point at what point is someone going to like get in the huddle and start screaming at people? And like at what point is Russ just going to get an offensive foul by just barreling into the rim or at what point is Anthony Davis going to like throw someone to the side to try to get an offensive rebound or do something just to show some fight. And that fight just wasn't there tonight for whatever reason, you know? And like, again, like as we're, as we are talking about these little miniature checkpoints throughout the season that kind of reveal the mental makeup of the team, uh, you know, I'm not necessarily sure that this is a bad thing, uh, but it's certainly not a good thing. Certainly doesn't make me feel more confident about what this team is made of certainly doesn't make me feel like, you know, mm-hmm. you know, that 2020 team. And again, we can't always compare them to that because it's not fair because it's a different group of guys. But like there was a certain a, like a certain amount of fight that that team had that that made them so much fun to watch. Because if they ever were down 10 in a game, you always felt like they were still in it. If they ever were down 15 in a game. You always felt like they were still in it because they just always had these runs in them where they would kick into gear and fight and fight and fight. Like I'll give you a perfect example. They went into Milwaukee that year and remember Giannis shot their eyes out and Middleton shot their eyes out in the Mm -hmm. first quarter and they were down like 40 to 20. And you were like, this team is going to pack it in, but they just did it. They just battled the entire game. And I think they only lost by like nine Anthony Davis. Like even though Giannis was on fire, Anthony Davis just kept going right at him every possession. I think Anthony Davis finished with more than 30 in that game had a couple plays where he took Giannis right to the rim or defended him well. Like it was, it was just, there, there was a certain fight and, you know, I'm not saying this team is absolutely capable of getting that back. It's just for whatever reason, it's not there right now. And I, I don't really know what to make mm-hmm. of that. As far as the advanced metrics go, you talked about, Oh, are they going to be a top five defense? Well, first of all, we're, we're nearing what we've already played 12 games. We're, we're entering into an area here where there's enough sample size that it's going to be really difficult for this team to touch some of the, elite teams in the league in terms of their season long metrics. This is going to be one of those deals where we're going to have to specially measure their metrics when they actually have their guys available. Um, you know what I mean? Cause like they could get everybody back and go on like a 30 game run where they have all their guys and be a top five defense, but it'll manifest as, you know, ninth or 10th on the season, you know, rankings just because of how much bad data they put in, like getting your ass beat at home by Minnesota by 20, 
that's going to throw off a bunch of data, you know, uh, throw off a bunch of data points for this season, you know? So this is one of those things where we're going to have to be really careful as the season progresses when we're trying to project how good this team can be. We're going to have to be really careful to kind of like find out what's throwaway data and what's not, you know, because a significant chunk of the season, Carmelo Anthony has been their only power forward. So like, what do you, what do you make of that? You know what I mean? Like, that's just, that's just tough. So, I mean, it, it is what it is. But did you have any more thoughts on this game? I thought we could take a minute to uh, chat about some of those topics we had talked about um, earlier this week. Yeah, just the last thing, I guess, um, I wrote down here. Do you remember that, like, flagrant foul Carmelo had uh, at the end of the, end of the first quarter? Do you, do you remember that? At, at uh, I think someone was shooting from, like, the, behind the, the – face rake. Behind, behind half the court. The face rake. Yes, 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 behind half court. I thought that I know like that was early, but I really thought that turned the game. Like just looking at body language, Minnesota kind of felt like they were. So we were up nine, I believe it was like twenty six to seventeen, and uh, Minnesota was kind of like feeling like okay, we could kind of get ran out of the building. That was just my read on like how they were playing and all that. They like the Lakers were you know in super boosted up energy, and then that flagrant foul happened, and it only cost us two points. But I like rolling my notes like this could kind of change the game here. And it did. The Minnesota came out of the second quarter. They cut that. They went on, I believe, us. So they had the two points from the free throws. And they went on another like 6-0 run, I think, to make it like 26-23. Yeah, they took the lead in the second quarter. And I think quarter. they even took yeah. – yeah, they took the lead. And I thought that really just killed the momentum. And, again, I'm not blaming Melo for a loss. But I just think like that was an interesting kind of turning point. But I think that's enough. And Oh, last thing on this game. I thought Wayne Ellington had a good first half again. Like I thought he played well. Uh, I thought he kind of busted up the zone. Uh, Minnesota went to zone one possession, and uh, in that I think in the first half, and Wayne Ellington had three. That was my only real positive from tonight. Uh, was the Wayne Ellington looks like he's a legit shooter in Staples, which is which is nice to see. But yeah, that that's pretty much it from this game, I guess. Yeah, that was a that was a huge momentum killer. That one, and then the weird Rondo play where he just like him and AD decided in the middle of a game to have a conversation while walking the ball up the court. And got an and got an eight second. Oh yeah! Oh, the app eight second. Oh, I couldn't believe so that. Weird. I don't yeah. even think that ended up hurting them necessarily on the scoreboard, except for the loss of a possession. But it was just like a weird, like it was a weird, like uh, oh, we have the lead now, and and they're just gonna they're just gonna let us run away with the game type of deal. You know what I mean? Um, anyway, so right. let, let's talk. Let's talk about this Alex Crusoe thing for a second because this is super fascinating. Oh man! You know there was a. Uh, <laughs> There was a uh, a debate that took place on Brian Windhorst's pod um, today. I think might have been today, might have been a different day, but they they were talking about they both kind of picked a side, you know. And Bon Temps was strangely on this, the same side that I'm on for once because uh, that guy that guy literally drives me insane. Um, but uh, uh, t- basically, uh, I'm blanking on his name all of a sudden. Um, Dave McMenamin. David McVenamin took took the organization's position and the way he pitched it basically was like we had a number. The number in mind was, you know, two for 15 or whatever, seven million a year. And they weren't willing to go above that number because of this larger vision of what they had. And uh, the way that the way that they looked at it, you know, uh, they were able to like as in terms of just a simple cost value proposition, they were able to replace a certain percentage of what Alex brought to the table for by saving this amount of money. And Bontemps, you know, pointed out one fact that I thought made a lot of sense that was super fascinating. You know, the mid-level exception doesn't make you 
immune to luxury tax. If you, the mid-level exception gives you the ability to go over the salary cap to sign players that are not currently on your roster. However, you're still on the hook for any tax associated with that salary. And basically what Bontem said was like, who's a better player, Alex Caruso or Kendrick Nunn? And I think we would all agree that, I think we would all agree that Alex Caruso is clearly a better player. And, you know, for the difference between the eight or nine million or nine or 10 million or whatever that Chicago paid him and the six million that they paid Kendrick Nunn, why not just pay whatever that gap is and keep Alex Caruso instead? He's just a better player. He's a fits a more important need for your roster. You're under the impression that you're going to get Malik Monk. You're under the impression that you're going to get Russell Westbrook and you have LeBron James. And so there's just no need necessarily for what that position brings. So why were you pinching pennies on Alex Crusoe, but willing to spend on Kendrick Dunn? And you know what? I don't know. I, I can't, I can't answer that question for you. That, that, that is a tough one to answer. And at the end of the day, this is the same argument that I used when, when Kyle Lowry was on the table last year, people greatly, greatly, greatly underestimate just how close the NBA championship is to swinging a different direction almost every season. You know, we talked about Kevin Durant having a foot on the line. That was the difference between Brooklyn beating Milwaukee, right? We talked about, uh, you know, Giannis's knee. Giannis's knee, if that buckles instead of, uh, uh, you know, only partially buckling, he misses the finals and the Suns win the title. You know, uh, even in the NBA finals, the, in game four of that se- or game five of that series, Wait, it was game four. Game four, the Suns are up 2-1. They have a one-point lead late in the game. And, you know, a, a couple, of, couple of big shots, a couple of key defensive stops, and all of a sudden you're, uh, you're tied series tied at two instead of 3-1. Or Toronto when they're about to fall down 3-0 to the Bucks in 2019, and they steal a crazy game in game three, and it ends up turning the series. It's one of those things where you have to, you have to understand that these margins are extremely tight. The difference between winning and losing is is so small in so many cases. And so it's so, so dumb to pin, pin, pinch pennies when it could be the difference between you winning and losing. Alex Crusoe may not seem like that good of a player relative to all of the talent on the roster, but he could very well be the difference between winning in the first or winning the title and losing in the second round to a really, really good Phoenix Suns team. Or a really, really good Golden State Warriors team. That's how close these margins are. And so that's why I, I had a problem with that philosophy from ownership. Yeah, I mean, this is a bad night to talk about Alex Crusoe. You know, I mean, probably the worst night to talk about Alex Crusoe. Look, man, like, I know people say get over it. But, I mean, there was new information that was brought out. He went to the Bulls, got a contract, went back to the Lakers. And, look... I'm not here to count anyone's money. You know what I mean? I don't know how much the luxury tax would have cost. I'm not really into, I'm not good at the salary cap and all that stuff, but I just think like title windows is not where you, is not where you try to save. You know what I mean? Like we are in a full on title window and you try to like trying to save money in that time, like just really doesn't make sense to me. And you said that Alex Caruso might not look like a great player, but he was to us like in house. He started game six of the finals. Like the, obviously they know what his talent is. And I have a hard time believe believing LeBron James and AD don't see it. And maybe, you know, it was kind of a separation uh, between, you know, front office and players. 
I really don't know. I don't know what happened there, but there was definitely a mistake. Like Alex Caruso to me is one of the best guard defenders in the league, and he's been one for a long time. And he was in all of our closing lineups on our title teams. Like there, there's no they there was no secret for who he was. And my biggest issue with this, I guess, if you're gonna let me just go off here, <laughs> like the like look cre- crediting like like we always talk about crediting an organization for a player's success is kind of an unfair way to look at it, right? Like that's not really the way to like. People always do that. They're like, oh, Julius Randle, he went to the Knicks, and now he's a superstar. Let's create the Knicks. Like, Julius Randle put in a shit ton of work to get to where he is. Alex Caruso put in a shit ton of work to become the guard defender he is. Put in a shit ton of film film work. Put in a shit ton of, you know, all being in the gym to make himself a really good offensive player to go on to the defense. The Lakers did, like, the hard work, though. You know, like, they found him in the G League, developed him a couple years. He becomes a starter. He becomes really good. He becomes... One of the most connective players with your superstars. AD, LeBron, and Caruso plus minuses are through the freaking roof. Like, like they still are. You can go back and look at those numbers. Um, those numbers are through this through the roof. So you got him, you developed him, you you create you not create him, but like you found a gem there and he came to you and he even came and said, Look, I'll take a discount. And the Lakers still said no. And that's just something we have to accept. But that's kind of my issue here is that, like you they did so much of the hard work. Lakers scouting department has hit on so many players. But Caruso hurts more because it's like a he, t- he not only won, but he won at the highest level, and he proved he can play at the highest levels. You know what I mean? Next to the next to your core that you're building around, you can still go trade for us, Westbrook, do all that stuff. But you know your core kind of players, like as a fan, what you root for because we are still fans here. Um, what you root for, you want to root for players that kind of started on your team, right? That's just kind of how it goes. And Caruso started from the bottom for lack of a better term and kind of raised himself up to become a starter on a damn championship team. And, you know, he, he took a little less money the first year, but like now's his time to pay to get the payday. I, I don't know. It's a bad night to talk about this, I guess, uh, but that's my biggest issue here. They did the hard work. You find him in the G league, you develop him, you get him to the point where he's not only a good player, he's a freaking winning player that impacts winning at a super high level. And he just walks out the door for nothing. Like he just walked out the door. You replaced him with some really good players. Like Kendrick Nunn's a good player. We have to see him play. Um, THT was the guy they said was the one-on-one, one-for-one replacement. I don't think that was necessary, really, but that's what people say happened. We still need to see THT. Maybe he makes his leap, but the Crusoe thing definitely is frustrating. So, uh, yeah, sorry if that's rambling. For no, you're fine, man. It, it, like it, you're, it's the it's the reality of the situation, you know. And and when when the team, you know, I think Genie and all these people were banking on the Lakers attacking the season early on with their week schedule and them sitting at 10 and two, you know, uh, nine and three, something like that right now, where they would just be able to point to all the critics and be like, look, you're like, Alex is doing great in Chicago. That's fine. But we're doing great too. But that's not what happened. You're sitting at seven and six and you've lost to the Oklahoma city thunder twice. You just got absolutely destroyed at home by the Minnesota Timberwolves. And you look like a team that has no identity, particularly on the defensive end of the floor and particularly with your effort. So how do you not expect the fan base to look at what's happening in Chicago where, yeah, it's not all Alex Cruz. So it's a lot of talent. Lonzo Ball is partially to blame for the turnaround there. Uh, you know, DeMar DeRozan is partially to credit for it. But we see Alex Caruso in Chicago on a team that suddenly has a defensive identity that suddenly has this liveliness to them that was missing in previous seasons. And we remember that same effect from Alex when he was here. 
And so we're looking at a seven and six team that looks like it could desperately use itself some Alex Caruso. And so that's that that's where Jeannie screwed up here is she miscalculated the fact that, you know, if you when you are cheap, when you hoard your money in this regard and the team doesn't perform with the expectations that they had, then you open yourself up to criticism. And that's what happened here. And I'm glad you pointed out all that stuff about just how good Alex is, because there's a reason why he started game six of the 2020 NBA finals. It's because when you really factor in what needs to be done to win basketball games at the highest level, Alex checks all the boxes. You know, if you're going to complain about one thing, it's the fact that he's not a super great spot up shooter, but he does everything else so incredibly well that every time on the floor, that scale tips in his favor and in the favor of the team he's playing for, which is why he's a plus minus hero, which is why the best lineup, the best two man lineup for the Lakers of the last two seasons was LeBron and Alex Caruso. It's it, it is a he was a, a absolutely amazing fit here. And then when you factor in what you just talked about having to do with the fact that he's homegrown, the fact that he represents a win for our front office and our scouting department, it's even more disappointing because it's like it'd be like if you were a, a, a really fancy teaching hospital and you picked up this awesome graduate from Harvard who was the top of their class and you trained them through residency and then you got cheap on them when they were when it came time for them to apply for a job and you lost them to another hospital. It's like, okay, then why did you invest all this time and energy in training them? Why did you invest all of this into helping Alex Crusoe get to where they are? And to your point, too, Alex deserves a lot of credit. This is not a, you know, there are even the greatest organizations in basketball struggle sometimes to convert supreme talents into productive basketball players. I mean, look at the Raptors with Stanley Johnson, for instance. So obviously, Alex deserves a lot of credit for this as well. But there, there's a good mm-hmm. amount of this that uh, reflects a, a front office that that was cheap. And now they're losing. And it looks like the reason why they're losing is they're lacking in certain uh, you know, intangible characteristics on the team. And, and Alex addresses those. Also, the team doesn't have anybody over six, five, that's really strong and physical and can defend their position outside of Anthony Davis. So, uh, where would Alex Caruso fit in there? Alex Caruso would be a better power forward, you know, than, than many of the guys that they're having to, or not power forward, but on the wing than many of the guys that they're forced to play right now. And so, so it is frustrating, but it is what it is. I mean, we all got to move on, but to your point, there was new information that came out and that, yeah, that's, that's the whole reason we're discussing. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, don't, po- don't, don't post bail for, for, for rich people. That's just stupid. Like, especially in a situation like this, the, the reality of the situation is, is Jeannie bus and the bus family are doing just fine. Um, I've, tr- I've done some research through just picking the brains of some people uh, that I know who know more than me. And there is there is a contingency set up for this team when they have to pay huge luxury tax bills. There's a way for them to come up with the cash. There's a way for them to disperse that. Uh, there's a way for them to be able to afford it and to make up for it in years where they don't pay the tax. Don't let anybody tell you that they're physically incapable of uh, of making that payment because they absolutely are. They could pay a hundred million more than they're paying right now. Uh, they couldn't do it year in and year out, of course, but they they there are contingencies set up to allow this ownership group 
to be able to shell out the cash to keep players in title windows like this. And they simply chose not to. And, and so that, 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 in my opinion, leaves them open to criticism. Yeah. And I'm not there to like call, you know, Jeannie cheap. I'm like, I'm not there at that point. You know what I mean? Like, I, I just can't get there. I just feel like it was a misplaced, you know, thought that they could just replace what Alex does. And I can't really just blame Jeannie on that. She's not the president of basketball operations. Like Rob Palinka is like, they made the decision to go into this new team and look, the roster has flipped for the last two years. Um, this may just have been another consequence of that. Like I'm not there yet. I just think it was, I think it was the wrong decision, but I'm not there to like call the whole organization cheap. Like, I don't think you go trade for Russell Westbrook and, and, and cut corners on the sides. Like, I think that those two things, like I can separate Alex Caruso not on this team and like why we should have signed him. And also this team is just bad right now. Like I separate those two things. Like I'm not like throwing Caruso on this team. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like that was just a wrong decision as a whole. Like, would he help this team? Yeah. But I feel like those are two separate kind of issues there. Like, I feel like he should just came back anyway, whether or not you thought he fit the identity of this team, but they obviously didn't. And I, and I'm choosing to believe that over the fact that they just didn't want to pay Alex Cruz at all. Cause it felt very clear that he was just not in their plans, which because of the offer that was given, at least that's what Caruso kind of said on, on the, on the JJ Reddick podcast. Uh, the offer was so low that it was completely negligible for him. Um, so obviously I think he just was not in their plans and that's just something we have to accept. Yeah, it is what it is. And, you, and, and to your point, had some things gone differently to start the season, then I don't think people would be complaining, um, but they didn't. And so this is the shoes that they're in. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? That's just the, the reality of the situation. No different than the Frank thing. Frank is not on the hot seat if the For team sure. is healthy because the team would be competing and winning, but there's talk surrounding his job security simply because the team is not performing you know, to their preseason expectations. So we got, we got about 10 more minutes here and I wanted to touch on one other kind of league wide topic with you, just because we haven't had a chance to on the pod uh, in the last few weeks. So there has been, there was kind of like two extremes in this regard. So the um, last year, we just had this outrageous offensive season Um, to give you an idea for the most part throughout NBA history, offensive ratings have hovered somewhere between 105 points per 100 possessions and 110 per hundred possessions, depending on the, uh, um, uh, you know, depending on the year, depending on how physical the refs allowed the game to be. And then last year it got crazy, got up to like 112. And so then you had all these people, these like, you know, uh, older NBA fans that were obsessed with their era and everything that about their era who were like, this is BS. This is the steroid era of, uh, of, of the NBA, blah, 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 blah. And then they make these rule changes. And offensive ratings plummet. I think I think we're hovering right around like 107, 108 right now. And a bunch of guys who used to be efficient scorers are suddenly struggling to score. And so now you're seeing all the same guys come out and say like, ah, the, the, this is the most skilled era in NBA history. Look at them now. They can't score, you know, and it's kind of like turned into this whole thing, which almost all the discussion around this kind of thing is intellectual dishonesty. And it's and it's kind of frustrating but I guess we can start with you, Raj. So my, my question for you is this. Do you agree with me that the that there that regardless of what is happening with the rules and regardless of, of what is happening with the stats, that the league right now is more skilled than it ever has been in, in the history of the league? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think that was pretty clear. I mean, you can just look at every team. You go one by one. There's stars in every team that 
don't even get the attention I think that they should. Like, you can even go on Sacramento. I think De'Aaron Fox is just an insane guard, and he just he's probably on the lower end of like star star young guards with like John Moran and Luke Doncic and all those players. Like, I think players are even coming into the league even more skilled than they ever have. Like, they're ready to play right away. Like John Moran, rookie year was probably like a star already walking into the league. Like a lot of these players coming in are way more ready to com- uh, to contribute than I think they've ever have been. The game moves forward, right? I, I think every player now learns from learns from everyone from the past. And I think that's why players now are definitely more skilled. And look, the game is definitely more offensive driven. And I can, and I feel like the league definitely wants to tilt that back a little bit with the new rules and with all the, you know, non-foul calls, but most definitely, I think the league is actually in great hands. I think the product is in great hands. Uh, the game looks even better this year with all the new rules. Definitely think players are more skilled today. I didn't I actually didn't like think that was too much of a, a debate. I know some old heads do definitely think that the game was, I guess, more tougher back then. But I don't think you can argue now. I mean, look at the you can just even look at the three point percentages. Look at the shots that players are taking now at just a ridiculous difficulty. Um, shots that are accepted now as like just that back then weren't you know these like sidestep dribble fadeaway threes are now like just normal practice for a lot of players in the league uh not just step but like just regular players take those shots regularly that you just didn't see before so i guess that's my take on it i think the league is definitely more skilled if the game is better now i think that's a conversation that you know two people can have but I definitely think players are 100% more skilled. So I think the driving force between the animosity on this topic has to do with the fact that the uh, people associate me. Like if I say Kyrie Irving is is the most skilled, you know, offensive player that I've seen, you know, you're going to have people that'll be deeply offended that you're not factoring in somebody from an alter, from a different era. That's that to me is foolishness because every player has to be, you know, graded on the curve that has to do with what their circumstances were. So for instance, like, you know, even with longevity, it's hard to weigh the longevity of current players against the longevity of players in the eighties when they just didn't have the same level of sports medicine. If you had an ACL tear in the seventies, that surgeon doesn't have the capability of rebuilding your knee the same way that they do today. Today, an ACL tear is nothing but a year and a half off. When you come back, you are absolutely every bit as explosive as you were when you left. I mean, hell, we just saw Kevin Durant light the world on fire to start the season after tearing his Achilles, and that used to be a death sentence, even just five, six years ago with Kobe. You know what I mean? And so so much of this is like we have to grade people on the curve of where they're at. When I say that people are more skilled now than they've ever been, that's not a shot at former players. That's just, to me, the natural progression of the way this industry works. Myself, realtor Jason from Tucson, Arizona, has moves, offensive moves in my game as a basketball player that did not exist on the court 10 years ago. Things like you're talking about, sidestep threes, step back threes, one like fadeaways, things along those lines that just that literally came from players 10 years ago experimenting in identifying a new way to gain an advantage and using that to improve their game and then people copying them. No different than Kevin Durant copying Dirk or even LeBron over the course of the last stretch of his career has, you know, added things to his game that have unlocked like like his turnaround fadeaway, things that things that he didn't used to take, things that you never would see 
um, you know, a player that big take the way that he takes them. You'd see, you'd see super athletic shooting guards take that kind of shot, but you would like every, everyone is kind of slowly and but, but surely just constructing their game based on the, whatever's available, whatever Intel is available, whatever's available to them at, at the time, you know, like that Steph Curry in 2015 and 2016 was a lesser player than he is today, in my opinion, but he was so far ahead of the curve relative to his surroundings with his shooting that it literally broke the game. The, the, the defensive coverages weren't even set up to be able to handle him. And so that, that's the way I look at it. It's like if you, you can only be judged relative to what your time was, you know, like, and, and from that regard, me saying that the league is more skilled now is just an indicator of natural progression. And it's not a shot at former players. And it goes both ways in terms of the offensive ratings. And this is what I always tell people, like in theory, if hand checking got, you know, outlawed and you were never allowed to contest a three point shot without committing a foul and you weren't allowed to touch guys off ball and everybody and their brother was just free to do whatever the hell they wanted on offense and defenses were completely handcuffed and guys were as skilled as they are today. In theory, teams would average 170 points a game, right? Because, because they were averaging in the hundreds previous to this before all these changes. So you have to also factor in that defenses improve over the course of time, not just in versatility and athleticism, because we went from having two lumbering bigs on the floor at every time to now the vast majority of centers in the league are leaner and less like muscular, but more athletic. And they're more like rim running bigs that stretch the floor that are more mobile and, and capable of covering space on the perimeter. And we've ditched the Paul Millsap types of the world for the, you know, the, the freak athlete type of power forward, you know, uh, um, uh, athlete long can switch onto guards, that type of thing. Just in general, the, the uh, defenses have transformed to be able to counter all of the things that offenses do today. And that's, that to me is super fascinating. Like you know, we, we talk about it all the time, you and me, just the little, little details of defense that Frank Vogel has used over the last couple of years to try to slow teams down, mm-hmm. like the sophistication in the rotations, pre-switching, to try to stop from attacking Trey Young, you'll see teams pre-switch the switch before the switch that stops Trey Young from being attacked, or you know uh, all these all these little wrinkles that these teams like everybody's constantly trying to gain an advantage, and that's just the way the industry works, you know. And in terms of you know Larry Bird to me is like the guy who invented the computer, and the guy who invented the computer is immortal. He changed the industry but computers are a lot better now you know what i mean that doesn't that's not an insult to larry bird that's not an insult to the guy who invented the computer it's like if anything we depend on him because none of this would have happened without him and maybe that's a bad comparison and maybe that's the the wrong way to put this but the way i look at it is like it is i would i would hope that 20 years from now the game has advanced even so far that people look back at lebron and go like hold on like that 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 guy was the best player in the league. Are you serious? Like, what about this dude who's Kevin Durant mixed with John Morant, kicks with or mixed with LeBron James, mixed with Luca? Like, God, God knows what the best players in the league is going to look like in twenty years. It's probably going to be absurd. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And people are always developing, and that's what I meant by people are coming into the league even more developed than ever. 
I think players practice differently now. You know, nowadays uh, people are training from like nine, eight, nine years old in super professional training programs. You know, I don't think that existed before. I look at Luca who's been hooping since like 15, but he knew he was going to be a professional. So like his training was different. He walks into the league basically a superstar already. Like you just look at these players. You have all these 6'10 guys who now can dribble, you know, step back threes and stuff that just didn't exist uh, back then. So I agree with you. The, the game always moves forward. We'll see what comes next. I think like guys like KD, LeBron are kind of one-on-one, one-of-one kind of in that way where, you know, they kind of change the game. KD, I think, is the best scorer ever to me. Uh, LeBron's probably one of the best players ever in terms of playmate mixing playmaking with just being able to control a defense, manipulate a defense, and people get better as they come in the league. And I think that's just, I just that's how I see the game. It moves forward every year. I feel like players are better at a younger age now. Their primes last a lot longer. You don't have to wait till a player's like 24 to, for, to, for them to have MVP type of impact. We're getting that at like 20, 21 with a lot of players. It's, it's insane. The league is moving at a insane talent level and the amount of teams is still like there's only 30 teams which means the talent pool is still only like 450 guys and the talent pool is just growing more and more uh to where only 60 guys get drafted and then you know you have a bunch of undrafted guys that, that come into the league but the talent pool just keeps growing and i think that's a great thing for the game yeah i mean like nikola Jokic is starting to look like a bona fide top tier superstar and my guess is that when LeBron comes back from his abdominal in, uh, injury, he's going to look like a bona fide top tier superstar because that's what he looked like against Cleveland and against Houston. So the truth of the matter is, like we've got Jokic, LeBron, Kevin Durant, uh, Giannis, Steph Curry, and we have Kawhi. You know, who, who will eventually come back, and we know what he's capable. Like, when have we ever had this many like top tier? you know, like ultra super duper duper stars, you know what I mean? And it's just, it's, it's, it, to me, it's just, I, I think it's as an NBA fan, it's weird to be so resistant to the growth of the game. You know what I mean? Like it makes way more sense to me to complain about something to have to having to do with the flow of the game, like officiating and reviews and, you know, the commentators being so negative and being so preachy, like those kinds of things that, that, those are the things that disrupt the game that we love. Those are the things that deserve to be called out and criticized for so many reasons. But doing like attacking the players themselves for their little personal touch that they're putting on the game, like, like listening to Charles Barkley. This is where I brought this up. I should have clarified from the beginning. This has to do with Charles Barkley's podcast appearance, um, you know, with Eddie Gonzalez and with Kevin Durant on the ETCs, you know, there was a lot of good in the podcast to be clear. So I'm not trying to, to undercut that. And Charles, Charles, I genuinely like him and, and a lot of the things that he has to say. However, in this case, the way th- his general disdain for the way guys play basketball now is kind of infuriating to me. And, you know, there, there, I was happy Kevin Durant kind of called him out on, on one thing, like, you know, cause at one point Bar- Barkley's like, you know, uh, like, well, why do you guys keep shooting them threes? You know, and like, and Kevin Durant's like, you know, sometimes that's what the defense is giving you. Like if I drive to the basket and they take away the paint for me and I kick it out to a really good shooter, I don't care if we've missed six in a row. If it's a good shot, that's what we take. That's how we play basketball today. That's our personal touch that we've put on the game. It's a driving kick game because the floor is more spaced. It's not the same as it was uh, in your era. And that's okay. And, you know, uh, and I, I, ho- I hope to God if, if 10 years from now the league changes again and I become Mr. 
I'm on my porch preaching about how much these players suck. I hope you guys all come for me, you know, like I hope you do because it's, it's just not fair, but you know, I think it's awesome. I, I, I guys, like I literally, I literally was coming back from the pandemic and I was, I was 20 pounds overweight. I was trying to drop all this weight. I was trying to get back into basketball shape and my, my knee was killing me. I was having horrible tendonitis and it was really causing me to hit a wall and I wasn't moving as well as I wanted to. And I was really, really frustrated. And then some guy on, on Twitter who's 50 years old, who is still dunking, like sends me this brand new program, this like uh, knee, knee kind of like uh, uh, reconstruction, you know, like exercise program to strengthen your patella. I've been doing that thing for six weeks and I'm jumping better than I have since I was in junior college. Like, it's insane. Like I, I, I literally, I'm like, I feel like I've got like the, the secret to life. I just want to, every time I see somebody, I just want to be like, is your knee hurting? Let me show you something. <laughs> like <laughs> like it, it's crazy. And it's like, I just, these are the kinds of things that we have access to now. And I think that's so cool. I think that's awesome. Like the guy who invented this program has a replaced knee. Literally his knee is, is artificial and the dude can dunk. And, and it's, and it's because of, of technology that we have just knowledge. It's not even tech in this case. It's knowledge. We just learn through trial and error as human beings, how to be better at what we do. And, and I think that that's so cool. And I hate that people poo poo on that all the time. It's just, it drives, it drives me nuts. I feel like it's such a, a negative attitude to have about things. Anyway, I'm off my soapbox. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're good. You're, you're right. Look, we're at a, we're in a totally new age. Things keep advancing. Players come back from injuries a lot sooner and like with Charles Barkley and even Shaq has his stick as well, right? Like he likes to have the center be the, you know, go out and get 30 and 15 like he did every night. And Charles Barkley has his way of viewing the game. And, you know, sometimes it does feel like it gets old. He does have his own kind of opinions and stuff like that. Uh, but, yeah, like you're right. The game's moving forward and we have a lot more things that we have access to. We're lucky that players come back a lot quicker now. You know, we're lucky that there's a lot of injuries that aren't you know career ending anymore and you're right it's super cool and hopefully the lakers kind of uh can kind of be a part of that as well uh part of that movement towards uh all this brand new stuff that we're, we're kind of getting into uh while the nba moves forward as well yep i agree um everybody thanks for coming to hang out tonight we sincerely appreciate it i know it's friday i know you're all very busy um i hope you all have an awesome weekend and i hope that on sunday the lakers come with a little bit more fight and this team needs LeBron back desperately. I hope he's right around the corner. Um, this is going to air on dash radio. Actually, this one will not air on dash radio because our Sunday show will. So that might be better because we were all pissed off tonight anyway. (laughs) Um, but this will be on our podcast feed, um, here in about an hour. Um, and as always, we appreciate your guys' support and we will see you in a couple days. Appreciate it. Thanks everyone.